4: Visit com slash excuse to start your free trial membership.
5: This is Writing Excuses, Season 6, Episode 11, Making Your Descriptions Do More Than One Thing.
4: Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry.
5: And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. I'm Howard. And Mary, you pitched this podcast, so I'm going to let you introduce it.
4: <laughs> so what we're talking about today is ways to make description do more than one thing. A lot of times someone will describe a room... But you can actually get it to do more than just describe the room. You can release information about the character or the plot at the same time.
5: All right. Uh, so how do we do this? Um, Howard, is this one of those ones where you're just going to kind of look at us and say, just draw a picture? It does so many
6: things. <laughs> this is one of the things that I'm not particularly good at. But when I'm doing, you know, when I've got a, an establishing shot, yeah, it it functions in the same way. The the line, the angle, uh, the way that panel is composed has to do more than tell you, uh, oh, we're looking at a space station or, oh, we're looking at a bedroom. It has to convey some emotion. It has to convey some character. And th- those things all enter into it. Only I get to use pictures instead of those clumsy, clumsy words. That's right, I suppose.
5: <laughs> but I, as I think about it, this might be a good way to approach it. It's, approach it as you're a writer. I don't know. Just try to attack no, no, okay, things from different let sides. Let yeah. me, uh, Approach it as if you're, Howard, drawing a picture of this place.
6: Okay. Um, there is a piece of cartooning syntax that is uh, uh, well-known to cartoonists, not very well-known to people who read comics, and that is that uh, as things, at least for English comics, as things move from the left-hand side of the page to the right-hand side of the page, that is indicative of progress through the story. Anytime things are leaning back in the other direction, leaning from right to left, it is indicative of regression. And so if you have in the last panel, a character, you know, the last character who is talking is facing back in the other direction, um, that is subtly indicative of regression in the story. When I am drawing a large scene and I want to increase our progress through the story, I want to increase the tension, I tip everything to the right if I want to indicate that we're stalled, I tip everything to the left. Wow. And, yeah, it's... That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's, really, it's really cool and the effect is subtle and sometimes I mess with it and we are making progress. I know we're making progress through the story and I tip it to the left anyway because I, that's the cartoonist's equivalent of, um, you know, oh, it's just the cat. Mm-hmm. So, huh. Um, I'm sorry, that's, no. that, I could totally derail the episode no, just with that, cartoon no. syntax. No, <laughs> <Well>, that's
4: cool. <laughs> yeah, because puppetry uses the same thing, aggressive passive and regressive motion, which is anything that you want to engage in, you lean towards, and I wind up doing that in the description of my character's motions, mm-hmm. that if they're interested in something, I wind up having them lean forward, uh, rather than just saying, she was interested in what he was saying.
5: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is actually really fascinating <laughs> to me. Uh, <laughs> but. I mean, if you, if you imagine yourself as doing this, as saying, OK, I'm going, to, I'm going to be telling a story visually, what's going to be happening visually, and what cues can I get visually in my description? She looked out at the building, which was leaning slightly to the left. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh.
5: uh, and suddenly we're all going to be making Tim Burton films.
6: OK. Um, no. And that's why those films work in that way, is because he is leaning those things in order to indicate emotion that you wouldn't be feeling otherwise.
5: And most of the time you're not going to be able to do something that drastic in your fiction. But you can give, what we're talking about here is um, painting a mood Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. an emotion, Howard called it, an emotion and a characterization of the setting or of anything simply by the words we choose. Um, And you can do this from both ends. If you've got a character walking into a room, the words you choose can paint the mood of that room. And paint the mood of the character, Kay. and there's you can go either way depending on how you approach it, and that's a very subtle balance to get right, and yeah. it can be kind of hard to do. Okay, like if. Oh, sorry.
4: Okay, me first or you?
3: I'm first. Great. You I'm actually enough. going to give a uh, another nonverbal example of this because uh, it's been used so brilliantly in a lot of movies, uh, and in Twelve Angry Men. It's a movie that takes place in one room as jurors argue a case with each other. And watch this. And it's amazing to watch the camera. The, uh, the first third of the movie is shot from a very high angle. It opens the room up. It gives it a lot of space. Uh, and then the middle third of the movie is shot at about eye level and it makes it very personal. You're looking these people right in the eye. The final third of the movie is all shot from a low angle. So you feel very intimidated. The people are bigger, The personalities are bigger. You, as a viewer, are smaller. It makes it very closed in. It makes it very tense. And it completely changes the mood and emotion of the movie as you move
6: through it. Now, a verbal example, what I was going to share. You've got... uh, We we talk about how characters perceive things. You have somebody who walks into a messy kitchen. Yep. And you say, you know, the kitchen was cluttered, dishes everywhere... Um, and the person, you know, then moves on with their activities. You have another person who walks into the kitchen and immediately catalogs, you know, there's a plate left on the counter from yesterday's breakfast. And there's, you know, puddles of pancake syrup here and there. Um, the things that this character is noticing tell you a little bit about how much they care about the dishes.
5: Mm-hmm.
6: Mm-hmm. Um, and, that's- and you can imply it's their house from, from changing one or two words.
5: Or yep. imply it's not their house.
4: Exactly. Mary. Um, I was going to say something along the same lines, which is um, it, not just you know, what items they're noticing, but definitely the words that you use. Like, um, I'll, I'll use a cardboard box for an example, because that's a pretty neutral item. So you can say it was a brown cardboard box, and, and you have described it. Mm-hmm. But you can also, like if you've got someone crawling inside it, the difference between uh, she cr- scrambled inside the cardboard box, it was dark and stifling. Um, right. Versus... Right. Or
5: into the dark and stifling box. Yes, yeah, into the dark uh, and stifling box yeah. is much better. Yeah. But,
4: but which is very different from she scrambled into the warm and cozy box. Yes.
5: Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Um, and what we're, we're we're trying to do here is we're trying to force you to have more of an economy of words, which is really something ironic for me to say um, <laughs> since I write thousand-page books. Um, and yet, having... And yet
6: you still use yeah. these...
5: I techniques. still do this stuff. Mm-hmm. I just, I just do words. a lot of Economy it. of yeah, Words you're, you're, <laughs> allows
6: you to write a thousand-page book that never gets boring. As um, yeah. we are reading descriptions... Hopefully, that's the <laughs> goal. As, I, as yeah. I read descriptions in yeah. Way of Kings, those descriptions were doing multiple things, and they kept engaging me. Right. You were building a world, which you needed to do. You needed to, you needed to wrap a world around these characters, and it needed to be big. And as you were doing it, uh those scenes were all, or the, those descriptions were all multi-purposed. And so I remained engaged. I didn't feel like, oh, he's just filling out his word count.
3: Right. <laughs> he's trying to get enough words for his teacher to give him an A on his paper.
6: Brandon <laughs> Tree Killer Sanderson.
5: Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, all right, Mary.
4: One of the things, uh, this reminds me of when I first started writing horror stories, that the difference between horror and, and something that's just dark is is the quality of the description in a lot of ways. Like, mm-hmm. I can describe something yeah. that is slimy, but if I describe something that is, you know, that it clings to her fingers, mm-hmm. th- that is a much more visceral Right. Experience. I mean, the,
5: the difference between really good horror and slasher f- in fiction, I think, comes down to that, the quality of the description. And it's very interesting to read, um, to read the horror genre and not having read it a lot, because you go in expecting a certain thing mm-hmm. and you realize that the horror genre tends to be one of the most poetic and beautiful genres with its roots when way back in well. Poe mm-hmm. and Lovecraft. Um, when you read it now, a lot of the authors have taken that and you get the same sense of just creepy ambiance from everyday things, and that's all description. Well, and, the, and the reason that you know something clinging to your fingers is scarier than something just
3: being slimy is because it's restrictive. Mm-hmm. What you're trying to do in horror is show the direct effect that the environment has on the character, Mm. that it is impeding you in some way. It's not just dark. Your vision is obscured. Mm -hmm. It's not just sticky. It's making it hard for you to move your fingers. Those kind of details are what makes horror scary because you feel, you know, trapped. Why can't we be this brilliant all the time? Well, because (laughs) we're not. (laughs) Because we're We're trapped and our fingers are sticky. Um,
1: Custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-N-T.com. C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com.
5: Um All right, we're going to do our book of the week. Um, and I'm going to suggest um, our, our um, wonderful friend Mary has been on the podcast now for several months. And we haven't promoted her book yet. Even though we promoted it years ago. Um, and so <laughs> I think it's time to pick Shades of Milk and Honey um, as our book of the week on Audible. Um, it is a delightful book. You will enjoy it. Um, it is um, kind of a, essentially a Regency story, which means Jane Austen era, um, but with magic. And it's a very subtle magic. It's, um, we're, it's not Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. It's not kicking you in the face. It mm-hmm. is actually beautiful and lyrical and... Um, Full of wonderful characterization. Um, I highly recommend uh, Shades of Milk and Honey.
4: And we should mention that I'm also the narrator for it. Oh, wow.
5: That's. See, that's So if you like no listening to
3: her voice on the podcast, you will love it even more on the audiobook. So that's uh, Shades of Milk and
5: Honey by Mary Robinette Cole. Kowal. Kowal. Yes.
4: Kowal. We've been on for months. Yes. And still... <laughs> and I still stumble over that name.
5: Oh, Kowal. Kowal. Okay. Kowal. Say Kowalski. Okay.
6: And drop off the ski. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Are Mary Kowalas Robinette and Ski. No a. I mean koala with no a is even easier <laughs> yeah oh wow <laughs> so head out to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse and now you have no excuse for mispronouncing mary robinette koala's last name yes. you can kick off a 14-day free trial membership and download a copy of uh, shades of milk and honey
3: see now i just want her to write furry fan fiction by mary robinette koala <laughs> <laughs> And I will be uh,
4: disappointed until that happens. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry you wow. will be disappointed for such a long time. Oh, man. At oh, least we wow. have a good writing prompt I'm, now. Get, I'm, getting up, I'm getting up my— uh, I'm getting Regency
5: out era of of fuzzy <laughs> fanfiction. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, Howard's going to draw this. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> I, I don't have any paper with you. Oh, me, no, okay. All nice. right. Before so, we just send yeah. completely into um, furry fandom— um,
4: there, there is, uh, as we were talking, you just reminded me of a story that I recently critiqued, in which the, um, the author had a line that was doing something unintentional because of the words she had chosen. Uh, she, the, the line was, um, she was very beautiful with skin the color of a day-old corpse. <laughs> Whoa! Which and it was it was tight first. This was one tight, of my books you were reading. Yeah, but it was it was tight third person point of view. But the mm-hmm. which immediately tells you a lot about what the character perceives right. as beautiful. It was unintentional though.
5: Oh wow! It, See it, that can be a brilliant line, or it can be um, a grill in the phone booth. Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked about this in the podcast before. The the line that draws your attention away from from the important things because it's so stunning. And you can actually do that with description if you go overboard. Um, And it is a danger. One of the problems with description, anytime we do a podcast on description, I worry that that we're gonna encourage people to be purple. Um, Purple (laughs) means lots of description going overboard on it. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we're talking about. In fact, if you're doing what this podcast is saying, it should make your pros less purple. Um, It should be making your pros more targeted and focused. And you should be able to use much less description if you're doing it the right way. Um, a line like that is brilliant in the right place right. and in the wrong place because it doesn't, um, you know, people are going to focus on that. And if you want people to focus on it, great. If you don't, you're in trouble.
4: Well, and also if your character is not someone who perceives dead people as beautiful.
5: Right. That's that's basically it. That's that's mm-hmm. going to color what everyone's thinking about that character from then on. Yeah. Um, speaking as someone
3: who writes about a character who does perceive dead bodies as beautiful, um... The the descriptions in my books are still you know very austere. He doesn't wax poetic about you know how beautiful a corpse is because th- his personality is very bare, mm-hmm. and so keeping the descriptions very very succinct gets that across. Mm-hmm. That it's a very uh, spare kind of thing.
5: So, all right. And Howard has drawn a caricature of Mary as
6: Mary, a koala. Robin, a koala.
5: Um, it, it was not very good
6: give Howard, me time you're fired <laughs> give me time <laughs> redeem yourself now by saying something brilliant about description um, i already said the brilliant bit about the uh, the cartooning stuff the i love the the color of a day old corpse uh, example um, but coming going back to purple prose yeah. um i when you use when you use alliteration and assonance yeah. right. uh, those sorts of tools um, when you use them unnecessarily they stand out and we think oh you just picked these words because they all begin with the same letter. Yeah. But when you pull it off so that they don't, uh, so that it doesn't stand out, the prose flows much easier. And I actually, I, I enjoy that. I, I'm reading the paragraph and it sounds like it sounds like poetry. Um, if you were describing water, uh, describing falling water in such a way that the sounds of the words that you're using, and I'm not talking about water words, no, I'm I talking understand. about rocks and things like yeah. that. Um, if those sounds are able to, or the, the sounds of the words are able to also evoke water, right. you would you've would written something yeah. brilliant. You'd use
5: the water falling on the stones instead of rocks, because stones with the S's in it sounds more like water um, sliding over rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is, uh, this is where I have to
3: give my uh, semi-annual plug for reading and studying poetry. Yeah. Um, and when we're talking about, uh, this is a poetic device called word painting, where you use the words, the sound of the words. To convey something, and uh, for example, Alfred Lord Tennyson is fantastic at this. Um, he's got uh, several poems about uh, you know the King Arthur legend that use this when he 's talking about a knight in armor walking across a rocky path, all of the words have lots of D's and T's in them, and you get this kind of hmm. you know dint of metal sound Stomping, as it's walking clanking. around and yeah, and yeah. it 's just brilliant. Uh, so look for things, look
5: for poets that do that well and then try to emulate them. Um, To bring this back out, since we're we're running low on time, the last thing I think I want to mention is give a reiteration of really try and make your description a vote character. Um, This is going to keep you from going purple. It's going to keep you from doing only one thing. And when you do only one thing for too long, your story starts to get boring, particularly if it's description. Um, Description can get boring very quickly. And if you ask yourself every time you're starting a paragraph, you're going to put in a line of description. What does this description say about the person who is seeing it? Or what does this description say about the person that they're describing? A vote character in one one of two ways and in and try and inject a little bit of mood in there, you're gonna be just fine in your descriptions.
6: Yeah. Well you also have to ask yourself the question as you're you know writing the description. Um what is this uh how is this description necessary to advance the story? Yeah. Am I planting mm-hmm. a key clue here as part of a mystery? Um do I want the reader to be feeling, you know, warm and happy? Do I want them to be feeling at peace with what is going on here? Um, because I'm about to, you know, drop a <laughs> drop an anvil on their head in the next chapter. Um, those sorts of things. I mean, I agree the character has to come first. Um, but when we talk about descriptions doing multiple things, I'm always looking at what I'm writing, looking at what I'm creating, and saying, all right, where is the story right now? Do I need to pull back out of the descriptions, or do I need to... Uh, yeah, trying to throw them in more. You know,
3: very, very quickly before we end, another great thing you can do with descriptions is, is convey a lot about the setting. Uh, you don't have to say, for example, come right out and say, dragons are very common in this world, as you know. Uh, but you can just have characters describing, you know, walking down the street and seeing a dragon and treating it very matter-of-factly. All of a sudden, you know that this is a setting where dragons are common, and you don't have to be overt about it.
5: Okay, um, let's do a story prompt. Um, as much as I like Mary Robinette as a koala, let's go ahead and pick something else um, that has to do with description. Um, I think we'll just go ahead and pick uh,
4: Can pick, I actually yeah, offer one? Go for it. Because this, this is a… a Nobody writing, ever actually,
5: volunteers
3: writing prompts. I know.
4: But this is actually a really good one for, um, for description, uh, which is to focus just on the description. Take yourself someplace and for 30 minutes describe the environment that you're in. Don't describe the, the people. Just describe the space and try to use all five senses. Okay. What's going to happen to your brain is that you'll hit a point where you're like, I cannot possibly describe anything else. And that's when you start noticing the little details. And the little details are the things that make a story.
5: All right. Wonderful advice. Wonderful writing prompt. Um, This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write.